tell me one thing, Burke? You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back, but to wipe them out. It's just one of those things managed to wipe out my entire crew in less than 24 hours. And if the colonists have found that ship, then there's no telling how many of them have been exposed. Do you understand? I ain't much for begging. Nobody ever gave me nothing. So I say, fuck that thing. Let's fight it. Organism, the Alien Saga podcast, is brought to you by the generous support of our incredible patrons. To learn more, please visit www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support. The following is part of our ongoing mini-series investigation into the history of alien resurrection. Re-engaging resurrection. Enjoy. So... We're a fast learner. I think you will find that uh, things have changed a great deal since your time. I doubt that. We're not flying blind here, you know. It's the United Systems military, not some crazy corporation. Oh. Well, it won't make any difference. You're still going to die. Welcome to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast. I am your host, Jan Prater, and today I am joined by co-host Patrick Green. What up? And our impromptu guest host, Connor Murdoch. Welcome, Connor. Hello. Thank you, Colin. Absolutely. And uh, just briefly, Connor is one of our admins or moderators in Building Better Worlds, which is uh, the official group of uh, Perfect Organism. And we kind of had a last-minute opening for this second entry into the Alien Resurrection series, and we're like, Connor, do you want to come on? And he's like, I'm just about to go to bed, but sure. Uh, because he's in Scotland, and it's two in the morning or something. Um, so here we are today, uh, discussing um, the script stage of Alien Resurrection, and I'm going to pass it off to Patrick. Yeah, so, you know, last time in our, uh, well, I guess this is actually our third installment. It's We kind of spaced it out a little bit, but the last time we talked about the development and pre-production, and we ended up talking quite a lot about the script. And so we kind of thought it would be good to revisit that and go a little more in depth and do a deep dive into the actual script itself, which we have in front of us. It's pretty exciting. And uh, so we're going to we're gonna choose some key scenes. And we're going to talk about it through the lens of screenwriting and also through the lens of the Alien Saga, um, talking about the tone, talking about the characterizations, some things we like, some things we don't like. And... Uh, Basically, the reason why we wanted to dedicate a full episode to the script is because of the fact that resurrection is so complicated and there's so much to talk about that if you go back to the very fundamentals at the very beginning stages of it, it uh, can offer a good gateway into larger conversations down the road about what went wrong and what went right. So I guess without further ado, we'll get the ball rolling on this. Um, 
again, Connor, it's so great that you could join us. I'm, we're really so pumped you could be here. I can't wait to see what you choose too. But I'll go ahead and get started. So the first thing that I want to talk about is early in the film, and uh, I'm, and also just so you guys know, we're, we are reading from versions of the script that actually are prior to the final shooting script, because as far as we can tell, the final shooting script is not available anywhere on the internet. So things might deviate slightly from what you see in the film. But um, I think it, you know, it'll still work in terms of uh, of our purposes for this. So anyway, so I'm going to go ahead and read the, the scene, and then we're going to break it down a little bit. So here we go. Interior mess hall. Ripley sits across from Gediman. He is eating at a good pace. Ripley, however, has stopped. She is staring at her fork, her brows furrowed, turns it over in her hand, in her mind. Gediman. Fork. The memory comes, and she shakes her head wearily. Ripley. Fuck. Gediman pretending to correct her. Fork. Ever so slightly, she smiles. The smile fades, and after a moment, Ripley. How did you... Gediman. How did we get you? Blood samples from Fury 16 on ice. Do you remember that place? Ripley. Does it grow? Gediman. Does it? Yeah. Rapidly. Ripley. It's a queen. Gediman. How did you know that? Ripley. It'll breed. You'll die. Everyone in the fucking, she searches for the word and then spits it out, company will die. Gediman, company? Wren offstage. Wayland Yutani. He has entered behind her and comes up to the table. Wren. Our Ripley's former employers, Terrain Growth Conglom, had some defense contracts under the military. Before your time, Gediman, they went under decades ago, bought out by Walmart. Fortunes of war. Ripley, you'll find things that have changed. You'll find things have changed a good deal since your time. Ripley, I doubt that. Wren, we're not flying blind here, you know. This is United Systems military, not some greedy corporation. The potential benefits of this race go way beyond urban pacification. New alloys, new vaccines. There's nothing like this in any world we've seen. You should be very proud. She laughs bitterly. Ripley, oh, I am. Wren. And the animal itself is wondrous. They'll be invaluable once we've harnessed them. Ripley, it's a cancer. You can't teach it tricks. This stops Wren, and he retreats silently. Ripley repeats a word to herself, thinking. Ripley, them. Fork. Fuck. It's, it's a fork. How did you... How did we get you? Hard work. We used blood samples from Fiori 16 on ice where you died. We've remade you. We cloned you. Fiori 16. Does that ring a bell? Are you remembering something? Does it grow? Yeah. Very rapidly. It's a queen. How did you know that? She'll breed. You'll die. Everyone in the company will die. In the, in the, in the company? Wayland, Utani. Ripley A's former employers. Terran Growth Conglomerate. They had. Defense contracts under the military. Oh, they went under decades ago, get them in way before your time. 
bought out by Walmart. Fortune's a war. I think you will find that uh, things have changed a great deal since your time. I doubt that. We're not flying blind here, you know. It's the United Systems military, not some greedy corporation. Oh. Well, it won't make any difference. You're still gonna die. How do you feel about that? Wish you could understand what we're trying to do here. The potential for this species goes way beyond urban pacification. New alloys, new vaccines. Nothing like this we've ever seen on any world before. You should be very proud. Oh. I am. And the animal itself. Wondrous. Potential. Unbelievable. Once we've tamed them. <laughs> Roll over. Play dead, heal. Mm -hmm. You can't teach it tricks. Why not? We're teaching you. So that's a scene that I wanted to talk about because I think it's uh, an interesting mixture of things that really work and things that really don't work. As far as things that work, um, I, I I love this idea that you get this cloned this cloned character who has partial memories that she's inherited and at, she and to unpack those memories she basically has to go through the process of learning from scratch and it, it seems like uh like whedon really modeled this after some of the vocal and memory exercises that scientists did with chimpanzees for example or with like gorillas like coco and you see these um you know these scenes where they show this is real you know and and where where like a zookeeper is showing coco a placard and on the placard is like a fruit and Coco knows it's a fruit and she like presses a button that corresponds to it. Um, so it feels very grounded in something real to me. The whole idea of inheriting genetic memory, I think, is patently ridiculous. But that being said, Actually, fiction. Who haven't knows? you seen – there have been some scientific reports recently that are saying that, the, that it is possible that the DNA of our ancestor or the memories of our ancestors is encoded into our DNA. Um, very interesting research. It's pre it's preliminary, but I just thought it was interesting to kind of note as we discuss this what we think is sort of ridiculous. I mean, it is ridiculous, but um, there's a larger conversation to hear that we'll get into at some point. But well, do you, do you know why? Do you remember what the reasoning was behind this? Um, well, I'd have to bring up the article, but there was a couple of different reports on genetic memory and what that is and where okay, it's stored. Okay, I'll tell you what. Instead of arguing this. I think we're going to get one of these fucking scientists on the show and ask them about if this is possible or not. Okay. And if it is, I will be the first okay. one to say it makes less sense. <laughs> no, but all I'm, I'm only bringing it up to tell you that there, it's being discussed in scientific communities now, not as like hard fact. It's just speculation and That's some preliminary re reporting. So what we thought is ridiculous back in 1997, uh, were you even born then, Connor? <laughs> um, Me too. <laughs> oh, shit. He was five years old. Um, but uh, what was, you know, being just dis what, what was thought as ridiculous back then is might be somewhat more plausible now. But at, at any rate, continue. I just want to throw that in. Physiological things that happen to you in the presence of, say, trauma or, you know, some sort of emotional release. There's, you know, cortisone and, and various things that can be released and maybe they can have some sort of an imprint. But I, I, that actually does, doesn't make any sense. You know what? 
We're going to find out. But regardless, I think even if it is ridiculous, it, it, it in the context of a science fiction film taking place on a spaceship where there are aliens being studied, I can buy it. I'm okay with that. And I think that um, – The dialogue was more ridiculous than that. <laughs> it, it does get much worse than this too. I think it's interesting that she is uh, being being dealt with in this way as sort of a newborn – Things that I think are ridiculous is I, I, I think that the, the fact that she very clearly says fuck, which the reason why I wanted to read this out was because I have never really known before if she's actually saying fuck or if she's just mispronouncing fork, which I think is the, the kind of the joke. But I'm like, why would you have a joke here about that? Right? Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's absolutely. I mean, like th- th- this is what I'm Sailor, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think that the uh, the acting of the part, the, the way it was directed is far worse than the dialogue. The dialogue's bad, but the way it was, it's presented to us in that scene, um, it just seems so tongue-in-cheek. Like, it, there's nothing natural about the way any of this dialogue is is presented, except for maybe Ripley. Ripley seems the most natural of the three in the room. Right. Right. Um... Oh, I, I guess before I go, I talk more. What are some of your guys' thoughts on that sequence? You think it works? Jamie, do you want to go first? Why don't you go, Connor? I'll I'll, I'll comment comment after you. It, it just it seems very out of place because at one point you've got Ripley who's looking there and she's very she's not knowledgeable, like you say, she's basically learning from birth. But at the same time, she's still got that predatory look where she's just swaying her shoulders back and forth and at the same time she's learned how to say fork and fuck but she knows exactly what the aliens are and she knows exactly what they're capable of from the very beginning and she's able to correct them on it that's the one thing I really don't get about that scene and let's not get to the point where basically Whale and Tani was bought by Walmart yeah that that whole sequence or that whole dialogue the walmart thing what's ridiculous about the whole oh yeah we're a new company you're a new company who's just the same as the old company with a new name because it's 200 years later it's ridiculous just they should have just made it the company again not the whole 200 years thing i don't know why they moved it so forward in the future so far into the future i know it's so weird every every other movie takes place in some sort of a realistic you know like it's within a, a lifetime you know or something this is like this random giant leap, and, and, it, and nothing reflects that. The technology doesn't look yeah. vastly different. No. The ways that they interact with one—I mean, like if anything, it looks like shit. So I, I've never understood this giant time leap, honestly, at all. Maybe it was to make the the plausibility of the genetic stuff more uh, like visible. But that being said, I mean, like this this was written in the '90s, and you already had plenty of genetic stuff going on, yeah. you know, with stem cells yeah. and with Dolly and that shit. Well, so even I find it. Right out of the gate with, I mean, just in terms of the script and some of the things that are sensical or nonsensical, you have Call, which is going to be a part of a scene that, or a character arc that I want to discuss um, later on, but she's this android who comes aboard the ship because she suspects that they're doing something illegal, and she's concerned about humanity, but she's hijacked other ships and brought bodies on board for them to take. Like, it... Complete contradiction. So you're this android with a human human heart or you're worried about humanity, but you're not worried enough to not go be a pirate ship and, uh, you know, take take people who are sleeping in cryo and give them to USM. Like, 
Right. Like right. it does. She, it makes it made no sense for her character. Whatsoever. It doesn't make any sense. Um, I, I do want to talk a little bit about. There's some great quotes in the uh, in the making of Alien Resurrection book that we always bring up, which is by oh Andrew Murdoch, not Connor Murdoch, but Andrew Murdoch and Rachel Avery. Um, uh, but, uh, but there's some great stuff with weed in, in here that I think speaks to this that I just want to kind of pull up quick. So, uh, he's talking about how the resurrection aspect of Ripley's character ended up being more central to the movie than he intended going into, because obviously, as we talked about last time, it wasn't supposed to even be about Ripley being resurrected. That came much later. Um, and then by that point, the script had been kind of hijacked by this new theme. And so he ended up having to really write a story about rebirth. So, uh, so this is a quote from Whedon. He says, the thing about being resurrected is ultimately it's larger than life. She's come back from the dead, okay? She's outlived life. The great thing about the resurrection concept is that it allowed me to bring so many changes on Ripley. It was about her being a different person. In the third one, we've gone to a very dark nihilistic place, which I thought was extremely cool, yet we had to go beyond that. What emerged, Whedon's ads, was a new, detached, ironic perspective. She really has seen it all, done everything, including die. She's emotionally engaged in what's going on, uh, obviously, but at the same time, she has a kind of detachment that lends itself to a kind of black humor. This one has a sort of sadistic whimsy to it. So I think that's what's going on in that scene. When, when the fact that she's toying with him with the fork, fuck, fork, fuck thing. Um, I think she knows she does. She does seem to know what she's doing. So I, I guess he's trying to signal right up front that she is not the Ripley that we knew, but she carries the Ripley that we knew somewhere deep within her, and she's emerged as this kind of like you know um, disenchanted, sort of like uh, you know been there, done that kind of a black humor character. So it's just a, it's setting a weird tone at a time when they're trying to convey innocence. And I think what's actually coming out of it is this sort of this actual weird kind of jaded experience. But anyway, that's that's the first scene that I wanted to talk about. Jamie, you want to, you want to pull one up? Yeah. And uh, just before I do, uh, kind of riffing on what you said, the beginning introduction to Ripley and, um, you know, when she kind of emerges from that cocoon and after, you know, they remove the queen um, from her chest, which reminds me of. Uh, the the review by Roger Ebert when that came out and he was like, um, he said something like, talking about the that device they used to bring Ripley back. Like they said, finding a queen, finding the like the recipe for to regrow Ripley. So that means there's a queen regrowing her, regrowing inside her at the same time. Is like opening is like opening up a cookie and looking for the recipe for the cookie dough inside it. Uh, it's ridiculous. So right, right, right out of the gate, alien resurrection has got this absolutely ridiculous idea. Absolutely ridiculous. Now that's not to say that there's some ridiculous things in films that the films are so good that we're like, we don't even think about it because they're that good. Unfortunately, that's not alien resurrection. Um, right. Right. If the movie were extremely amazing, I don't think we would be having this conversation right now. Oh, for sure. But the reality is that it starts from a place of extreme stupidity, and it just doesn't quite recover from it, even though there yeah. are flashes of, of brilliance in it, I think. And the moments um, where you see Ripley in her cell, and she's kind of looking at herself, and you can see that, I mean, Sigourney Weaver is an incredible actor, so you can see all over her face. She's trying to figure out, I am me, but how am I me? I thought I was dead. What am I now? Um, she doesn't, she's kind of in between worlds and you see it all over her face. It's very, those scenes are very interesting. They're very, they are um, very interesting. They're, they're shot very well. They're acted very well. Um, 
and then of course it all goes to shit. Um, and the scoring too, I think, is, is very beautiful. I a lot of the like, score, which is kind of figured. Out. I don't like that. Score. You don't like the score? Uh, not at all. I think the score reminds me of like some like TV Firefly movie or something. I think it's pedestrian. It just really it's so obvious. Ooh. It's so obvious to me, but um, it's just not to me. When a, what I love about Elf, um, uh, Goldsmith and was it Danny Elfman? No. Um, oh my God, a brain freeze. Oh, who are you talking about? Elliot Goldenthal. Sorry. Jerry Goldsmith and Elliot Goldenthal, there's a mystery to those tracks where the, the music isn't telling you everything. It's hinting at it's hinting at a story. It's not telling the story. Whereas I think with the Resurrection, it's telling you the story as opposed to hinting at it. That's just my I, experience. I think there are, moments, there are moments where I can certainly um, get on board with that. But I think there's moments of actual real beauty and depth to it as well. But we'll, we'll, do, a, we'll do a separate oh, yeah, we episode will. Um, at but some point. To, get, to, to wrap this part about Ripley up, I feel like those few scenes with her in the beginning are really interesting. We're exploring and then the exploration stops. She just be, turns into this, right. I'm just along for the ride like everybody else. She's useless. She, isn't, she wants off the ship. We don't know why. Because um, I guess she wants to live, even though she seemed like she didn't for a long time. Um, but then she wanted the alien to take her to the the cocoon, I guess. So she let that happen. It's just ridiculous. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and, and there's no, there's no room for meditation within it. I think what's really clear is that he did not want to make a movie where Ripley came back as a clone. Yeah. I think from, from the very beginning of the story, you can see how it was shoehorned. in. I think he wanted to make the newt movie. I really think that's what he was going for. And then basically he was forced, I'm assuming to bring Ripley back to get this thing greenlit. And, um, just kind of shoehorned it in and it came across like really not cohesive. And Joss Whedon, uh, historically does not write women well just because he did Buffy and whatever. He doesn't write women well. And I don't think Ripley is particularly written well. Um, I think she's performed well because Sigourney Weaver is amazing. Um, but that leads me to my scene, uh, which features yeah, yeah. Ripley. And this is my favorite scene in the film because it's so alien. It's probably for me, it's the, the most alien except for maybe one other scene. Um, so this is the clone room scene. So I'll read it. Interior cloning storage facility. She stands. She stands a moment, staring before proceeding through it. Call stands in the doorway. Others crowding behind her. Every face registers the horror of what they are seeing, but none so more than Ripley's. Numbers one through seven. The first failed efforts to clone Ripley. They are lined up like museum exhibits or side or sideshow freaks. Here it is: the fetal Ripley, the fetal alien visible through its translucent chest, in a jar. Here is a prematurely old, diseased Ripley, withered, blue skin, clinging to collapsed bones. Here is an attempt to separate the alien and grow it without the host. Boneless, bubbling tissue, weak and useless, mouth rigged in, in mildew, or midmew, I don't know what that, that word is. Each one more horrifying than the last, and the last the worst of all. Ripley approaches and stares at number seven, a complete mixture of alien and human DNA. A tortured, disgusting hybrid, half Ripley, half nightmare. Hooked up wires and machines, it lies on the tilted table, its head nearly level with Ripley as she finally approaches it. When it opens its eyes, they are hers. It turns its head ever so slightly to look at her, recognizes her. Ripley cannot even speak. She begins to shake slightly, looking at number seven. Number seven. Kill us. Ripley's mouth goes... Ripley's eyes go saucered as it speaks out of nothing resembling a mouth. Ripley staggers back, shaking now. This is too much to bear call. Ripley. Ripley turns slowly, slowly in a fever dream. Call cocks the grenade launcher with a crowd with a loud crack. Her eyes meet Ripley's. 
Ripley fires a, a grenade, chugging to the end of the room and bursting in fire and noise. She fires another, tissues and steel exploding into flame. She turns to number seven, hands shaking momentarily, and she fires, the poor creature dissolving into a cloud of flame. Freezing gas jets fill the room, extinguishing potential spread, but the heart of the firestorm continues to rage in the chamber. She backs out, the crew waiting for her outside. The launcher falls loudly to the ground. Ripley turns to Ren, her face rigid with pain. Ren backs up a step, looking around him for protection that the others have no thought of providing. Call. Ripley. Don't do it. Ripley stops, weariness suffusing her expression. Ripley. Don't do what? The tension passes. Ren breathes a little sigh of relief. Call punches him across the jaw, his head whipping around as, as he collapses to the ground. Call starts down the hall, not even looking at him.
Don't do it, Ripley. Don't do what? So yeah, I thought that um, that clone room scene was really intense, very alien. Um, it's the greatest moment for me in the film, aside from the, the scene with when they find Purvis and his anxiety and just played very well by, um, what's that actor's name again? Oh, I just had it. Anyways, great actor. He's also in David Fincher's Seven. Um, uh, I, ex except for the end of the, the scene where John are just, um, kind of rips it apart with that this must be a chick thing i mean again another another joss whedon one-liner that just wrecks any tension and any seriousness um and it's about my my single least favorite moment in the entire film is that line yeah oh yeah for sure i think yeah. it just represents everything wrong with resurrection and in one sentence and also you have resurrection that struggles from with being a parody anyways so then the dialogue is parodying it as well it's just it just it just tears it apart. If it would have just if we would have left that scene in silence, it would have it would have had far more impact than oh let's just let's just kind of be misogynistic about it. I mean that's yeah. Uh, so so we had a little bit of misogyny thrown in at the end to kind of eviscerate any seriousness Ripley ha seriousness Ripley serious connection Ripley had with those clones, which I thought was had uh, a lot of. Uh, psychological implications for her and for everyone else. Yeah, Connor, what are, what are your thoughts on that scene? Um, it's definitely, like you said, it's the most tension-wrought scene in the entire movie. But people that I've spoken to in real life, not a lot of them get it. And it's, I tried to say to them, it's like, imagine you woke up and you were surrounded by dead bodies that looked exactly like you. Imagine how you would feel. And you can slightly grasp it. But it's the fact that she's already killed herself. And then she's witnessing essentially her rebirth just being violated in seven different ways and seeing it in every, like the alien as well, basically mixed in with her. And she finds this one edge of her that's alive, this one piece, and she's looking at herself in the eyes and it's like, I'm going to have to kill myself again, but I'm going to live past it. And then she does it and she walks out and you see that look in her face when she's still got the flamethrower in her hand. She's looking at Ren and it's like, yeah, she might actually kill him, but she doesn't just she just throws a flamethrower on and he jumps back. He properly has a heart attack thinking that she is gonna kill him. And then he's just, just like going to do what walks away. And that would have been the perfect end. But then obviously, like you said, you get John was like, eh, it's a chick thing. Okay. Just slap that in the face. But apart from that, yeah, it's a terrific scene. Probably the best scene in the movie, in my opinion. Yeah, I would agree. Oh, I think it's I think it's easily the best scene in the movie. Totally, and I, I think that's that's probably a nearly unanimous opinion. I, I mean, every time that resurrection has come up on the show since I've been on it, you know, for fifteen months or whatever how long it's been, every time resurrection comes up, it's in the context of talking about either how bad it is or that scene being really interesting. Like every time that we've um, mentioned it, it's like that's the scene that everybody gravitates to. Probably because, as Jamie said, it's the most alien moment in the whole thing. It has the body horror, which I think is a, a big part of Alien, and I think um, it, it it actually gets at the heart of what philosophically should have been what's driving this whole movie, right? Yeah. From the very beginning, from that first wasted opportunity to double down on these existential questions of what it means to clone somebody or something, 
that that's that's where the movie should have lived, I think. Yeah. But instead, it moved. It became this this sort of a typical kind of haunted house movie that's not scary even, and they left it all behind. And then for that one, you know, three minute scene, they they it totally nail it. And I think that Sigourney Weaver, it, it was worth her doing this movie if only for the fact that she got to have that moment. I think it was a really wonderful acting moment for her, and I think it. Uh, playing both sides of it. I think the fact that she also played the aborted um, or the dying clone as well is really important. Um, I want to uh, bring something up that I think is interesting. So, so Dolly, the sheep who I mentioned in the context of the first scene, which I'm now really realizing, I think is actually, I think it's actually Ren and then get him in, but uh, you know, it's actually in the bumper for the beginning of this episode. So <laughs> it'll be very clear which character I was talking about. But anyway, but it, and I, I brought up the fact that um, the Dolly was recently cloned. And actually, I just looked it up. And she was cloned in February of 1997. So six months before the film came out. So actually, you know, or I guess seven months before the film came out. So they were already well into production at that point. They'd already shot all these scenes. And um, they were cleaning things up. And in the midst of that, the first big, you know, moral argument in the world around cloning was breaking out. Um, and I found a big, uh, I found a, a little bit of uh, information here. So um, the New York Times, when it came out, reported that uh, such techniques theoretically could be used to take a cell from an adult human and use the DNA to create a genetically identical human, a time-delayed twin. The prospect raises the thorniest of ethical and philosophical questions. And then um, in, in the book, The Making of Resurrection, that I mentioned, uh, they, they talk about how Dr. Ren basically um, is, com- is the complete embodiment of this whole idea of, uh, you know, the ends justify the means. That, um, like, when he says, I wish you could understand what we're trying to do here, the potential benefits of this race go way beyond urban pacification, new alloys, new vaccines, that whole thing that I was just talking about. Um, I, I think he's basically telling her that um, that the the moral implications of bringing somebody back from the dead, you know, if they have their own memories or whatever this is functioning on, um, pales in comparison to the potential benefits of it. Um, but and I think there's actually a little bit of something interesting there to talk about vis-a-vis the Cold Forge. But I'll save that for building better worlds. I'll start a thread related to parallels between Ren and somebody in the Cold Forge. Anyway, I think it's a great scene. I really do. What I also uh really like about what 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 I find is interesting again it's a missed opportunity for Ripley is in Alien 3 Ripley steps into this sort of character where she's this only woman on this prison planet she is in fact the alien she is a threat to them she's a threat to their spiritual fiber she's a threat to, she's a threat to their morality their chosen morality it's very Ripley is in fact and they blame her for bringing the alien with her um, she is a threat to them Alien Resurrection is almost the fruition of that, where she is not now not just the threat of, of, of bringing the alien with her. She is part of them, uh, physically. Like she shares DNA of the alien, and I, I, I think a great resurrection, resurrection could have been great if maybe Ripley started to break down um, on a cellular level. She started, and that whatever that DNA in her is from the xenomorph, it started to kind of uh, transmutate her body, um, and it really got into her own body horror. She started changing, and her head started to elongate. She started to disfigure. Um, I think that could have been really, really awful. Actually, I wrote a sequel to 
resurrection where she her and call run into another clone on another ship that can speak um and that's mostly alien but it can speak and it's got her face at the end of it whatever it's creepy um and she can only hear it from behind a wall they never end up seeing it because she she can hear its voice because it's talking to her and knows it's there i think that's really that's awesome i think they could have pushed that with ripley that connection because okay she had dark fingernails and her blood was a little weird it's like, oh, she had a good nails. She had good nails, right? And right, uh, and like uh, she got good at basketball and spark, you know, sparkly really blood, a little bit stronger. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but, but, I mean, because because like there's a fundamental instability going on there. If she's like part xenomorph and part human, like you would think that there would be something like the, the equilibrium between like her blood being acidic and her skin being human like that it would be burning through or there'd be some kind of an issue or she'd be getting pressure sickness or something you're totally right there's, i hadn't even thought of that there's like a whole unexplored aspect because the the body horror in that scene i think is really effective and if that had been played out more in more interesting ways you know kind of like vis-a-vis cronenberg's the fly i think that would have been super fucking scary yeah and really interesting but instead it's, it becomes this dumb funny movie yeah where it's more psychologically where do my, you know, where do my loyalties lie? Like her loyalties are going to lie with the fucking aliens. Come on. I'm someone of two races. I have always, you know, I've had a hard time trying to find out where I belong because I don't feel like I belong with the African-American community and I don't really know what the white community is. So I've always, that's always been something that I've dealt with, like being a stranger in a strange land everywhere I go. Um, so I get that sense of her character um, where she is also a stranger in a strange land. Um, but they just didn't push it far enough, and it wasn't... It's just not developed. It's not developed at all. It's, and and everything is a one-liner. Everything is a one-liner, so there's no dialogue of depth. And, I mean, and it's in case in point, didn't... I heard you, like, saw these things before. Yeah. What'd you do? I died. I died. Come fucking on! <laughs> Who approved that script? <laughs> I know. Uh, so, I mean, again, I, you know, it's, it's spilt milk, but it's worthy to discuss. It's worthy to get into a discussion that there's some real good stuff there. There's some real good um, story points that we could explore or other films, better films, better writers could explore. They just weren't explored. And um, all in the setting of kind of a, a dark parody, it just it ended up being what it was. Yeah, I think it's worth pointing out again that when we, the, the episode that we're doing in the series after this is focused on the production, and I think we're going to find more things to talk about there that we like because I think some of the technical stuff is really fascinating about how they achieved certain shots and how they realized certain things. But it, it, I really feel like the more we talk about it, the more convinced I am that the script is just truly the problem with this film and that a lot of the issues that we find with other aspects of it stem from the fact that the script is just not great. And I think the script, I mean, it was basically dropped on Whedon's lap when he was in his twenties and he had basically totally unproven except for Buffy and a couple of other doctoring treatments that we talked about in the last episode and toy story. Um, and like, it was this amazing opportunity. He was a big alien fan. He's a big sci-fi guy and he took it. And I would have done the same thing, obviously, like uh, any one of us would have, if we were screenwriters and we were approached to write the next alien movie, obviously you're going to take that opportunity. Right. Um, but he, at the end of the day was in his twenties. He was not a proven 
person and he got up for what he wanted to do, I think, in as intense a way as perhaps he should have. Because immediately, because remember, Sarah Legwe basically told him, do whatever you want. And then he did what he wanted. And immediately Fox went, well, actually, why don't you have Ripley come back? And then he did that. And then it said, actually, why don't you make her be cloned? And then he did that. And then they said, actually, why don't you make her incorporate alien DNA? And he did that. And then before you know it, the script is just not telling the story that he had wanted to tell. To the point of Whedon being a young writer, and like you said, you know, if someone said, hey, do you want to write the next Alien film? It would be hard for any of us to pass this up. Here's the problem, though. Here's the problem. I want someone to write an Alien film who knows what good science fiction is. Good science fiction is very difficult to accomplish. It's very, very hard to do. Um, we've talked about uh, Blade Runner 2049. I mean, the fact that it, it even exists and it was written the way it was is a miracle. Um, one of the one of the it's just incredibly well written uh, by people who know knew and know what they're doing. Um, they tasked this pedestrian, essentially, um, who wrote for TV, um, a serious alien film. You don't do that. You don't. That's why you don't. Um, that's why you don't have fans um, always um, kind of write the next script because fans don't really know what they're doing all of the time. There are fans who do, obviously. I feel like I could write, I, I've written, I feel like I'm, uh, for myself, I'm somewhat of an adept science fiction writer, as is Connor, more on that later. Um, but uh, I just, I think right away you, you don't choose a writer because they had something successful um, and, oh, yeah, it's with a girl. So you write this girl good, too. Like, you choose a writer that's worthy of that material. You choose a writer who, who can be serious. Someone like Christopher Nolan, not that these people were around back then, but uh, Christopher Nolan, Jonathan, Nolan, Jonathan um, I'm sorry, Jonathan Nolan, Christopher Nolan's brother, great science fiction writer. Um, but then, then again, you even have people like, Michael Green, who wrote um, Resurrection, and, and that was a little bit uneven too, but they also had a few writers. I'm sorry, I'm totally fucking that up. Covenant. Covenant. <laughs> no, let me start that again. You even have people like Michael Green, who wrote Covenant, or a draft of Covenant, along with other writers, and even that was a little bit uneven. So it's it's a very hard genre to master. When you, have, when you put people in charge of story or script writing, they need to be... They need to be people who are adept at this, people who understand fundamentally that science fiction, um, bad science fiction lasts forever and good science fiction lasts forever. So you better make it good um, because we won't forget. I mean, we don't a lot of people don't talk about resurrection because it continues to be horribly bad, um, even though there's some great things in it. So uh, uh, that's kind of my I, I feel like in some ways I've never forgiven Joss Whedon for that story. Um, but at the, at the same time, I kind of understand that he was young and he was being dictated by the studio as to what they were going to do. And then when they started, well, and that's, that's what I'm really getting at is, is I, I guess what I'm saying is I don't, I don't think it's like his fault. I really don't. I, I think he did what anyone, any of us would have done in that situation. And he took the job and he did what he could the best that he could. I mean, he's somebody who is, I, I'm not a huge fan of his work, but He's ex still extremely well regarded in Hollywood and churns out a ton of gigantic pictures every year. And, you know, like he, he's somebody of talent and he's somebody who people flock to. And I I, I don't think that he's a, a, a terrible writer. I just don't like him very much, um, you know, from a personal perspective. But I, I think that like he took the job and, and it makes sense that he took it. And what he did with it was probably the best that he could have done at that, at that point in his career. And it's just unfortunate that I don't think it was good enough to make a good movie. Totally.
Well, uh, well, why don't we hear from Connor? I don't think he's done okay. his. Uh, okay. His yes. Yes. Okay. Right. right. So I'm bringing up the scene that everybody loves, where the newborn decides to arrive. And um, let me just get my laptop sorted out. Okay. Interior waste tank five continuous. Ripley is frantically trying to pull at her bonds. It's just beginning to work, but the noise in here is getting worse. The aliens frantically agitated as the queen's belly begins moving more violently. She shrieks, and Ripley does as well, from effort or sympathy. It's hard to tell as the queen's belly begins to open. It looks painful, blood seeping out around the belly, but also horribly natural, an obscene mockery of human vaginal birth, and the newborn emerges. An alien, to be sure, but nothing we've seen so far. It's bone white, its head is long, eyeless, like the others, but along its white expanse run red veins coming out of its skin and running like thick bloody hairs to the back. It's much bigger than the others, nearly the size of the queen herself. And there's something human about it, maybe the stance, though its hind legs are huge, or the noise, like a hissing laugh as it comes upright. Maybe it's just the tilt of the head. Gediman, beautiful, beautiful butterfly. He's crying with revelatory joy. Ripley is not grimacing at the sight and the smell of this new beast. She begins pulling again at her bonds. The queen moans, thrashing gently now, reaching for its quivering issue. The newborn crawls up onto its mother, faces it, viciously rips the queen's face off. The keening shriek of the collective brood becomes almost too much for Ripley as the newborn tears right through his mother's flesh. One of the soldiers at the other end of the room from Ripley wakes up, dangling uselessly at his side as a rifle with real deal, not a burner. No God, he screams in uncomprehending horror. The newborn stops, tilts its head. It crawls gracefully up to the side of the tank, comes to the screaming soldier, gripping his sides as he screams lustily. It holds him a moment and rips the scalp off, plunging its teeth into his brain. We watch it drain the blood from his body, its external ventricles swell red tinged as the soldier's body goes blue and slack as rifle drops into the black pool. The newborn finishes with jaws as Venom stares transfixed and it lands on him. So the reason I brought this up was it's very different from the way it was shot in the final cut of the movie, whereas the design is completely different and this appears way more alien without the eyes and the nose. But the real reason I wanted to bring it up was in the first movie, even though we don't realise it until Aliens, Ripley has a daughter, and she's always trying to get back to Earth in time to, for her 11th birthday. But due to the events of Aliens, she doesn't wake up until she's already dead. And in Aliens, she gets a surrogate daughter, and then she dies in Alien 3. But the way they could have written this more thematically, I think, is if they made it portray that this was Ripley's newest daughter, a really grotesque violation of what a daughter should be because Jamie posted up a picture of a model on the perfect organism page. I think I'm going to brutalize his name. Yoshihiko Sano and it is a gorgeous sculpture of what I thought the new one should be. It looks, it looks human, but it looks also very alien at the same time. And yeah, it's just, super fucked up. Yeah, it's really disturbing. And I think it would have just played a lot well more if they used that in a sort of theme instead of just an abomination. It should have been an abomination of what she's been through. That was really the reason I wanted to bring it up is just because I thought it was one of the most criminally underused aspects of the movie that could have been done really well to sort of basically imprint more of the sense that this is basically a mockery of all Ripley had sacrificed herself for. 
So I'll, I'll let you guys see what you guys think about it, but that's just really my thoughts, and that scene is the main one I really wanted to bring up. Yeah, uh, the newborn, it's fascinating. I remember it grossing me out when I saw it in the theater. Like, I was literally sick um, just because of all the, the, the goo and just everything, the way it was born. And then it tore off the, remember when it tore off the face of the queen. And um, uh, I, I, I think in some ways it was effective. 
Um, because Ripley doesn't didn't even really know what it want know what it what was really like. Obviously, it was this giant monster, this abomination that seemed to have feelings, and then it kind of turned into a little kitty cat when it saw Ripley, thinking Ripley was its mother. Um, yeah, uh, I I like you said, Connor. I think that it's uh, it could have been far more effective with uh, some of the designs that we had seen that we've posted, um, uh, where it kind of takes on more of a an alien slash Ripley aesthetic as opposed to kind of that big blob that it was, um, where it really looked like pumpkin head to me, and I couldn't take it seriously, especially with those those puppy eyes. Um, but there was something about the, the newborn that stuck with me. There's something about its connection with Ripley that stuck with me. So in some ways it was effective. I, I just think it, uh, I, I, we're, we're kind of getting a little bit in, into the production stuff. So I don't, I don't want to go too far in the weeds on that because I, I have a lot of thoughts in that scene from a, a, from a production standpoint. Uh, I think the way that it's written isn't terrible. Actually, I, th I think it's kind of an interesting concept. I think the way that it's executed, though, is just so clumsy and and so wrong tonally. I, I think that, um, and we'll talk more about this on the next episode. But it, just just the the fact that it's 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 got all these like dolly shots where the camera's just kind of like for one thing, it's like a very close up shot and it's kind of just sweeping back and forth and it goes to Ren in the wall, then it goes to the Queen, and then it goes you know it's just like it's there's no stasis there and there's no horror because like the things that should be like the, the fact that it's a live birth from an organism that was not designed no sorry not a live birth that it, that it was a non-egg based birth um from a an organism an, an organism that was not designed you know to do that physiologically i think that could have been so scary instead it just comes comes across like the queen is this like giraffe giving birth to a baby giraffe and it's just sort of like in some pain but like you know i mean th that could have been in itself really horrifying like the, the it could have ripped her wide open i mean uh, you know i don't want to get too into it but uh, having been present during childbirth before it's a pretty horrifying <laughs> i mean it's it's the most special <laughs> it's it's special and the most beautiful thing in the world but it's also like a really physically difficult thing for mothers to go through obviously we all know that and I think that 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 could have been played on quite a lot more from a physical standpoint. And then also the newborn comes out and it looks like a pile of lasagna and cupcakes or something. It, it just looks so sloppy to me and so inelegant. And also, why is it huge? Like that, that I've never understood that. Like, why is it gigantic? Why is it bigger than the other uh, than like the drones or then it, it's like the size of the queen? Why is it the size of the queen? It's not like humans yeah, are some sort of the size of the queen. Right. And it's not like humans are colossal creatures. Like it's not like it, it took on the DNA of, of a human in a more direct way than, you know, a normal ovomorphic birth. And for that reason, it's gigantic. I have no clue what the reasoning on that was. And I also have no idea why they decided to do this kind of Disney over the top eye animation to do as jamie said the the you know kitty cat puppy dog thing and it's just so weird and even the moment where she ripped so in the script i actually think it's pretty effective the fact that she rejects the mother or it that, that the newborn rejects the queen and rips her face off that's a, that's a pretty scary thing but in the execution it's done in a way that just feels so 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 dumpy to me but we'll talk about that in the in the production series i i guess from a personal standpoint i actually think that that scene is sort of interesting in the way that it's written and in the hands of a different team and in the context of a different movie with a different trajectory i think it could have been a really actually a really memorable moment i, I but but as it stands now i just think of it as as kind of a kind of vaguely effective but kind of laughable thing um 
you know, you probably you might have noticed that the image when, when I posted the first resurrection episode that we did back in April, the image that I chose was the newborn's head getting sucked through the window. And I did that kind of as a joke because that that episode kind of devolved into this like just kind of everybody was kind of shitting on resurrection fest which yeah. I felt kind of <laughs> but but it, it, it's it's because we all had some baggage to talk about you know and and i and i chose the most ridiculous image i can think of in the entire film which is this fucking <laughs> newport getting sucked out of a hole oh god but anyway that's a production thing I, I i i'm just not crazy about that scene but i think it was written pretty well i think the one thing i'd like to add to it was that it would be really good to see how normal drones dealt with that situation because in the script it's written that they're actually in the hive on the walls around them when it happens and it would be really interesting to see after the queen just sort of looks at it and analyzes for a second and it kills her how would they react to that would they view it as a stronger being and just avoid it completely or would they attack it right again i would have loved to have explored that <laughs> yeah that's, that's probably the one thing i really want to do that scene after reading it right now i'm like oh god this would look amazing because we, there's no other examples of that. I, I mean, I think in, in in a couple of the comics, there have been moments where the queen's power has been usurped by like a rival, like in Hive War. I, I, uh, well, no, I, I, I actually I don't think I've seen it in the comics either. I think that would have been awesome to see that happen. Well, what's interesting uh, in terms of the writing of the of that scene, um, uh, you know, that scene plays out of so the queen has the baby, the baby kills the mama, thinks Ripley's the mama, but then you have this dialogue written for is it ren um where he's like well talking about essentially explaining why how the queen could have a baby um and so you see all these cocooned people and uh they're cocooned up like i don't part of it i was thinking like just in terms of the script like what are these people doing here are they there to be to feed the newborn because if they're not there for the eggs, because there's no eggs in the chamber and they're too high off the ground, um, it was just, I don't know, like some of the scenes. Just... Yeah, why are they fucking 17 feet in the air? I never understood that. And why did they bring, I, a... why, why did they bring Rip? why did the aliens bring Ripley there? For what reason? Like, I, I, I it just doesn't make any narrative sense I to never me. never understood any. I never understood that either. But I do think that the scene where they're bringing her is very effective and very beautiful. I've actually always loved the way that was done. Yeah. Um, where it's that beautiful cue with slow motion and the light going on and all. I, I think it's actually very beautifully yeah. shot. Well, it, it is beautifully shot, but it just doesn't feel like, I mean, I don't know. It's just it's just so like, it's, it's shot through this soft lens. It feels like, it looks like a, a soap opera. Like, I don't know, like, take me to your leader. Okay. We're going slow motion. You know, I don't know. You can I almost just, think they're dancing. Yeah, like I, I just can't take it seriously. It's not scary. It's weird. Not that weird. It's bad. I just, I don't know. I just again, a series of of bad decisions amongst a series of bad ideas, um, with a few cues that are effective. It's fascinating, though. I, I, so I was trying to think of which comic I was remembering a rival queen character appearing in, and it actually was Rogue because they create this this male Rogue character. So, that, that, so that's yeah. been explored a little bit in that, which is which is actually a pretty cool story. Not crazy about the artwork though, but um, it, we've never seen it explored in this way, and I think it, it could have been a, a super cool thing. The other problem is that they're shoehorning a fourth act on. They're doing the the typical, you know, alien thing, which by this point had been overdone of having the surprise fourth act come about and i think um 
you know, they're trying to just shove all this stuff into this movie that was feature length. And, and I think that it just, there was no time for it to breathe and to explore, you know, what could have been really powerful. Like, like if that scene had been 15 minutes long and in a different point in the movie, it could have been a really emotionally uh, and horrifically powerful thing, but it's just not. Well, we're going to get far more into, um, Alien Resurrection kind of moving from script to screen and uh, the cer certainly different uh, decisions that were made by uh, the director or directors, uh, Sigourney Weaver's decision making, the studio and kind of all of that and uh, all of the process involved in making a film. Um, but until we do and on future episodes, Connor, I just wanted to, again, thank you for coming on. And I wanted to ask you, like, what's your alien story? Like, how did you get into the series? Oh, God, it's so much that I can't remember, but I remember my dad telling me about quite recently that um, he was a very big 80s and 90s action buff. So he, the first films I ever remember seeing was Terminator 2 and Aliens. And Terminator 2 wasn't scary, to be honest. I just sort of cried at the end when you saw Arnie's fun within the lava. But then after that, he put in Aliens, and he just looks at me and he's like, you fear nothing in this movie apart from me, because there's nothing to be scared of apart from me. And I'm just like, okay, Dad, just put it on. And I just I remember being exhausted. <laughs> That's all, really. Until the very first scene where, it's not even when the, the colonist gets chest bursted, it's when you see them all moving out the walls, and you don't actually get a proper picture of them, you just see tails and arms coming out the walls. And I'm just thinking, because I have severe arachnophobia, I'm just thinking, Great giant oily black spiders, Dad. Great. I, I don't want to watch this anymore. And say, like, shut up, watch it, keep watching. And I just watched it all the way through. And I'm just like, yeah, next day at school, here's me drawing stick men with very accurate looking pulse rifles and stick xenomorphs with very accurate looking heads. That was a fun topic of conversation with the teacher and the parents. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> I ever since then, it's just been. I've never really attached myself to any other movies apart from the original three. Because even when, like, the before I ever saw the assembly cut, I still liked the third alien. Um, but yeah, it's just been the only sort of sci-fi series in general, movie series that I could actually, like, generally watch over and over and over again. Like, I can't tell you how many times I've watched the movies. My wife probably hates me for it. It's like, yeah, we're going to stick aliens on for the... 50th time this year. Why not? <laughs> every day, yeah, is, every day is Alien Day. Yes. I love that tag. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, David Amen. Google. Yep. Well, that's great. Uh, yeah. Is Aliens the your favorite of the series then? I mean, kind of redundant. Maybe it isn't. I don't know for sure. I don't know. I like I like aspects of every single one of them. I don't view them as separate movies. I just view them as separate acts of a book, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. I totally get that. I feel the same with the Blade Runner films. I feel like it's just one big story. I can't differentiate. Um, but I'm, I'm similar to that in the Alien films. Like, it's certainly the first three. It's kind of... It, the first one's The Forbidden Planet, and then it turns into a story about Ripley. So I'm there. Um, what do you... Uh, did you have? Were you able to enjoy the prequels? You know, what was that like when you heard that uh, Ridley Scott was going to come back to science fiction and release Prometheus? What were your, what were your thoughts about that? Um, when I first heard about it, I don't think a day went by where I didn't check Google News for uh, updates on it. But that came out, and I don't think I was very like mentally mature enough at the time to process the movie. So it took me a good few years, actually. It wasn't, it wasn't until I met my wife and we first watched it, and she's like, I get it. And I'm looking at her, and I'm thinking, really? 
you get it. I don't. So she had to educate me through Prometheus. And I actually started to love it. Certain aspects of it, anyway. I agree the the dialogue is vomit-worthy and some of the... <laughs> Some of the things that happen in there are a bit bullshit, in my opinion. But apart from that, I love it. It's a fucking gorgeous movie. I mean, yeah. I remember an Alien Day scene in the cinema, which is like, wow. Yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> it is absolutely beautiful. For sure. And uh, Covenant, um, I think everybody was in the same boat when the hype train for Covenant was going on. We were all pumping to see it, like fist banging. And um, I won't lie, I walked out of it quite disappointed. But at the same time, I think... As fans, when you see trailers, when you see certain aspects of the movie, you draw a certain picture in your head of how you would think that movie would go down. And it's obviously, most of the time, it's never happened the way you think it would turn out. And it wasn't until, like, you guys, like, after everything kicked off and everything settled down, and then you hear Patrick, fucking Braveheart of Covenant, like, Covenant! And I'm just like, no, fuck it. I'm, I'm going to watch it again. I'm going to keep watching it until I get through it. And it's every time I watch it, it's like an internal conflict. There's things I still don't like, but at yeah. the same time, it's like I could really marvel at the, those yeah. points. I appreciate it more and more as I watch it too. Like I was watching it the other day, and I was like, I was thinking about it. I was like, I want to watch this movie again. So I've been watching it, and I, the things that I don't like, I still don't like, but the things that I love, I love even more. Um, yeah, and it gets a little bit more watchable. Um, so I've certainly come around myself. So, but yeah, I think, uh, I like nuanced, uh, opinions. I don't like black and white opinions. Like I love it or I hate it. Like we can, uh, you know, like for me, like for instance, a film like Annihilation or Under the Skin, if you guys haven't seen that very complicated conversation. And I love films that do that. And Covenant does that. I, and I just want to say, I am in that exact boat with Prometheus right now. I well, uh, well I, rather rather I want to be in that boat with Prometheus because I still I still hate it, but I do I do think it's beautiful. I do think there are some interesting ideas going on. But every time I try to watch it, and I say try to watch it because I really mean that, I haven't actually finished it in probably three years. I, I really I I, I get wow. so turned off by some of the things, especially things in the third act. I'm just like, oh my god, I get, I get so frustrated with it. I really want people like you guys who like it more than I do to help me to find things that I love about it, just as it makes me really happy to know that I have helped at least in some way for you to have, um, you know, a different perspective on covenant, which, you know, you may not love it, but at least maybe there are things that you're seeing in it now. And, and I get that with Clara personally, because she loves it even more than I do. And she, uh, points things out to me that I haven't even thought about, you know, and, and I'm always the one defending covenant and every, and every conversation. Well, the big difference is, though, between covenant and yeah. Prometheus is the writing, the writing in, in covenant is, Essentially, it's just better. Uh, the characters yeah. are better. Um, the acting is better. I can't watch Prometheus with the sound on. I just can't. <laughs> That's the problem. Um, even though it's so these, beautiful. They are the dumbest characters I have ever seen in a science fiction film. Some of the dumbest characters. Now, granted, David's great. Uh, Fastbender's great. There's a couple of moments. You know, I think Vickers has some good moments for sure. Aside from that, I can't bear to hear Shaw talk. Um, I think she's yeah. better towards the end of the film. I like to. I don't mind hearing her towards the end when everything's kind of been decimated. I'll turn the sound up because things make a little <laughs> bit more sense, you know. Um, but Covenant's just a better film. It just is. Yeah. 
But I, I, I'm just vocalizing it again, as I do on like every episode, that I am on a personal journey of rediscovery for Prometheus. So awesome. anybody listening to this, <laughs> please send me shit to get me excited about Prometheus because I really want to come back in a year and be obsessed with it. So awesome. that's, that's my goal. Well, we're going to end it there. Um, we have so much more to talk about. Connor, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for staying up Thanks, late. Uh, we were like, <laughs> we were talking together, me and Patrick. We're like, oh, let's see if Connor wants to go on. I'm like, yes, <laughs> yeah, yes, let's do it, let's do it, let's do it. And then he said yes. <laughs> That's amazing, man. Thank you so much for dropping in at the last minute. You were great and did an amazing job with z- literally zero prep time. Um, it was so great having you on. Um, and thanks, oh, everybody, for listening. Of course, man. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again. again.